World War Covid. From Weapon World to Peace World. Learner, begin. The Capital Option. Any self-respecting capitalist would gladly run his profitable version of something like the Rolls-Royce Company. If he had any sense, and he didn't succeed thus far by being stupid, he would rather offer the highest quality product or service at the best price the market could bear. That would include the best benefits package for his elite workers and their family, superb educational facilities, healthy communities with low crime and low price survival necessities. All the benefits learners would share, this wise capitalist would arrange for his workers and consumers in order to make the best product and the maximum profit. In spite of his desire to excel, he must take into account weapon taxation both direct and indirect. Either the quality of his product must suffer or he must find some other way to shortchange his customers and workers so as to defray these taxes that offer him no gain. The greater the value of his product and the higher his profits, the more war taxes he will have to pay and the more they will distort his cost-benefit analysis. He can reduce the quality of his product and use the savings to defray his weapons expense. His employees, clients, and competitors will do likewise in proportion to their success. This limitation is unavoidable for every so-called free market enterprise on weapon world. On peace world, a self-respecting capitalist could satisfy his topic of passion and build the Rolls-Royce company of his dreams. It is there that cost-cutting would become business suicide if it reduced the quality of products and services. The race would go to the vendor of the highest quality, not the maximum cost-cutter at the expense of quality. On Weapon World, he has to betray his topic of passion, as all of us must, each our own. There is nothing wrong with capitalism per se, even though it can adopt one of two forms of growth. Once it shifts from one form to the other, it poisons the society that tolerates its presence much less its control. The first form of capitalist growth could be called the garden. In it, the resources of capital are invested in areas lacking those resources. Passionate gardeners cultivate the soil, supplement its nutrients and water it as required. They plant trees, shrubs, and flowering plants to suit their taste, rip out weeds and unwanted plants and leave the ground clear for favored ones. That is the work of capital at its best, superior over other forms of economic concentration and development. In the second form, the gardeners walk away or are otherwise indisposed. They no longer tend the garden, and weeds proliferate, revealing the second wave of capitalism. All the nutrients, soil, and water accumulated to further the growth of beneficial plants get sucked up by the other kind. They smother the old growth to propagate themselves. Everything else must suffer while they thrive. This course cannot be reversed except by applying much more labor and care. As time goes on, the garden will require more and more upkeep for little additional return. After all, a garden is a garden, nothing more and nothing less. Another analogy would compare the healthy cells of a growing body to the virus that attacks it. The first form of capitalism would be the body's careful regulation of clean water, oxygen, and nutrients to nourish its cells, carry waste away, and allow them to grow. In the second, a virus invades the host cell with the sole intent of multiplying itself at the latter's expense. It takes over, converts the cell's reproductive machinery to produce a crowd of new viruses and bursts it to release a load of new viruses among remaining body cells, and so on, the destructive feedback of capitalism gone bad. Nowadays, the most powerful people persuade themselves that viral or weed growth offers them more profit than a garden or body variety. They abandon long-term growth in favor of the weed type, more profitable in the short run but ruinous in the long. Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, Metropolitan Books, Henry Hold & Co., New York, 2007, describes this transition quite clearly. She reviews a series of synthetic and or natural disasters followed by political takeover that permit international tyrants to cannibalize the economy of entire nations. The Chicago School of Economics was represented by Friedrich von Hayek, Milton Friedman, Leo Strauss, the infamous town crier for the noble lie, and other maniacs of laissez-faire capitalism. They drew a self-serving analogy between the annihilation of a diseased psyche by administering overwhelming doses of electroshock and psychoactive drugs, even though those malpractices never produced a cure, and the annihilation of popular progress considered excessive, by inducing a succession of wars, natural catastrophes and fresh-baked tyrannies. In brief, psychopaths dictate political economics to the rest of us. In honor of this dishonorable philosophy, they took the first opportunity, and every other since, to silence the voice of the people and sabotage its will. Where they succeed, they strip out public services, savings accounts, and retirement funds, 
dramatically multiply unemployment by ruining local commerce and dismantling factories, and burden the people with public debt so enormous it cannot recover the vigor it had painfully won mostly in the recent past, all to the instant profit of laissez-faire capitalists. From Iran and South America in the 1970s, across Poland and Russia in the 80s, the Asian Tigers in the 90s, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and the annihilation of Iraq, the Kurds, and neighboring countries, massive bank stir payoffs have succeeded one another. Each new disaster brought them more profit in exchange for lower outlays of time and effort. All they had to do was silence anyone who intended to benefit the people. They bankrolled white-collar criminals to do their bidding, and rewarded the local military to come down hard on remaining dissidents. This combination required few funds and grew an enormous bottom line. Naomi Klein's healthy alternative to this kind of capitalism can be found at URL reference. Actually, this misbehavior can be traced back to the beginning of capitalism and even further, to the origin of mass societies. As each new one emerged, it grew by enslaving as many individuals on the periphery as its followers could get away with, ruining other societies, and exterminating primitive ones that got in the way. Nothing new there. Karen Armstrong, The Lost Art of Scripture, Rescuing the Sacred Texts, Alfred A. Knopf, New York, Toronto, 2019. She makes constant reference to the original sin of every city on earth, it must brutally rob its rural dependents for the extra food needed to sustain urban specialists and their dependents. The clearest example I can find in history is that of Tamerlane, Timur the Lame or Conqueror, 1336-1405. He embellished his capital city, Samarkand, into one of the wonders of the world. He decked it with vast riches, magnificent parks, and monumental architecture. He peopled his court with brilliant musicians, artists, scholars, and pious men. He did so by turning every other city on the Silk Road into a pile of ash and pyramids of skulls. Needless to say, that commercial network withered along with his capital city after his death, since no surviving caravanserai remained to harbor merchant convoys. The Silk Road never recovered even after centuries, until today when the Chinese are rebuilding it pretty much from scratch from end to end. Unfortunately, garden capitalists became hopelessly addicted to the wheat growth variety. Each new disaster they engineer delivers a thousand cuts to the collective conscience, presently, the whole world. Paradoxically, they profit in proportion to the damage they inflict. Marx deplored the fact that capital must inevitably exhaust its worthy targets of investment. As a society matures, the margin of growth of commercial enterprises shrinks as they compete with rivals of equal value and output. In the long run, a modern capitalist's last alternative is to destroy rival entities more or less completely and then invest in the ruins, his only means of renewing his profit margin over time. We are faced with a planet economically closed, globalized, in which commerce and industry are equal more or less everywhere. Nowhere is left for capital to invest and expect returns superior to those of the past. Only by systematically smashing various economies in turn, then investing in the ruins, can capital surpass its historic profitability. I repeat myself because the process is mindlessly repetitious and zombie-like. This can be seen as a kind of slash-and-burn agriculture where farmers burn a forest parcel and plant crops in the ashes. Once the ground loses the fertility acquired from burning, they move on to burn the next parcel. As long as the farmers are not too numerous and the great forest grows back and fills in the blanks, the trick works quite well. However, once people grow too numerous and the vital forest shrinks in proportion, the whole deal becomes a recipe for desert waste, the ruination of mild local climate and guaranteed starvation. Having suffered from the slash-and-burn tendencies of capitalist investors for the last few centuries, long before the world wars, sick, the earth has reached the point where everything that remains after each bigger and better forest fire has lost its compensatory growth. At this stage, the world economy has come to resemble a wasteland where a thriving forest once stood. A warning sign that the natural world has reached the end of its tether, easy petroleum is running out along with clean water, coral reefs, mild climate and other geophysical necessities. As raw materials become more difficult to extract and process, the sole economic resource left to draw upon will be the basic sustenance of world populations. A case in point is the capital invested to convert food crops, desperately needed elsewhere, into biofuel needlessly expensive. Once the people's sustenance is stolen and adulterated enough to satisfy the demands of capital and once those profits shift to a clique of billionaires and their clients, the people will rise up to oppose this extortion by force of arms. Since weapons have become so deadly, the sword, the optimal tool for tyrants, the AK-47, for the masses, and the virus, for the lone gunman, 
that kind of fighting will just worsen the problem by wasting more resources, infrastructure, and lives than during an equivalent stretch of peace. As for those among the rich and powerful who justify their misdeeds with too big to fail, the Romans discovered an effective punishment for legions that disgraced themselves in battle but were needed to fight another day, decimation. One wrongdoer could be brought low for the sins of nine of his peers without diminishing their capacity, on the contrary, that promoted better behavior in the future. Two out of ten if this correction does not take hold the first time. They need not be killed or imprisoned, simply stripped of power and benefits. Instead of sterilizing small businesses, as happened after the 2008 crash and during COVID, decimation would target bigger ones, those that introduce superior wrongdoers and their worst habits. According to this logic, outer space is the only field left for capital to invest in seriously. Earth must be seen as a home ground no longer subject to the destructive exploitation of capital. Its governors must treat capitalists who maximize their profit at the expense of the people, of any people, as enemies of mankind to be ruthlessly ejected from power. The world economy is not yet ready to exploit outer space and its limitless seemingly, at least for the time being resources. That project will require a few more decades of intensive development of mankind's basic knowledge and needs. Only then will enough infrastructure, intellectual, and capital resources be available to meet this task. In the meantime, any reduction of them for short-term profit must be criminalized, and capitalist financiers of such reductions, regulated to within an inch of their financial lives? The difference between peace world's approach to outer space, and weapon worlds, is time. A world at peace has all the time it needs to prepare itself, its people and its path to the stars gracefully. Ditto, AI. On weapon world everything must happen yesterday. So horrific enslavement and ecocide must be enforced just to make or beat the merciless time quota. This will prove to be a difficult task, since capital can call on titanic sums to hire the sociopathia to carry out its dirty work in their capacity as politicians, the military, the press, NGOs, and other social service workers. World leaders will be called upon to adopt fanatical devotion and revolutionary fervor to create an information network of such certified purity that only everyone could maintain and protect it. Peace world is a stage on which such people and their props could flourish, others would demand enormous self-sacrifice and devotion yet offer trivial returns. I call on capitalists themselves to acknowledge the corner they have painted us into. They must understand, with a steady gaze more penetrating than greed, the stakes they have set themselves up for, along with their dependents and the rest of humanity. Since this policy will be painful for capitalists, dragging them to the brink of bankruptcy and economic suicide, they will be the only ones qualified to determine how rigorously to apply it without killing the golden goose, to the limit of their tolerance. I'm relying on the fact that they too have children whose future they must guarantee if they can. Mere ramparts of dollars garrisoned by mercenaries will crumble under the shock of future socio-ecological blows. It is up to capitalists and themselves alone to promote the world economy we need. Only they can regulate themselves and check the misdeeds of sociopathia. In the absence of this transformation, the world economy will spin out of control at the hands of psychopathic profiteers and their sociopathic mercenaries. The toll of losses and destruction from this failure will be staggering. Civilization is not likely to survive. How can the term profit do justice to the priorities of peace world? The profit motive often triggers negative outcomes such as corruption among elites, such as the incompatibility of corporate products with similar ones offered by other corporations, their products in off-size containers and rapidly obsolete. Such as the private and corporate hoarding, rationing, and use tax of scientific knowledge paid for by public funds, as practiced by the publishing company Elsevier and others. Often called externalities, incidental or hidden costs like ecological damage and community poisoning are declared, beyond financial control and beyond the reach of the law. Why? Because weapon world is not aware enough to control them properly. It will never be that aware, before it's suicide from institutional stupidity, see that chapter. Soon enough, all those costs will be factored into basic cost accounting, with an emphasis on reducing disease among local populations and the natural world. Constitutionally foremost, the reduction of misery of the people from the bottom up. From that follow, universal lifetime healthcare, cosmopolitan culture, humane urbanism, natural Edenization, and countless other benefits resulting from learner progress. Such balance sheets, properly digitized, will forecast much more generous returns. Those that only read the bottom line of financial profit are so thoughtless they only respond to weapon taxation at the expense of everything else. Those are the choices we face, we, the people, and those odd fellows whose topic of passion is capital.
Comment. Mark Mulligan at Comcast.net.